With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Since lockdown started last year, more adults in the UK are sitting down and sitting down longer. At least 14 hours longer per week. That's two hours extra every day. And that's according to industry body UK Active. Now, as leisure centres and gyms in England get set to reopen following the latest enforced closure, there needs to be a real focus on helping them help us and our physical and mental well-being. I'm Michael. And I'm John, and this is Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy, the podcast speaking to the men and women behind British sport. In this episode, we hear from a leading sports scientist turned gym co-owner, not only about how tough the past year has been, but what the future holds. Hi, my name's uh, Dr. Neil Fell. I'm the co-founder and performance manager for One PT, which is a hybrid personal training and gym facility over here in Rochdale. How much are you looking forward to getting back to work and seeing your customers again, Neil? Oh, just can't describe it really. It's just um, so many deep-rooted emotions. Um, It's been a really challenging year, the last 12 months, uh, keeping the business afloat. Um, But I think we've been very, very lucky that we've got some fantastic members that have engaged with us over the last 12 months on the online um, by the... uh, the latest trend and craze of Zoom um, with our classes, um, doing online coaching as well, one-to-one, and also when we can or when we could, doing uh, outdoor personal training. A little bit chilly at times, um, but for a a lad who grew grew up in South Lakeland on a a dairy and sheep farm, then weather shouldn't be too much trouble for somebody like myself. And if I grumbled about it, I don't think my dad would be too happy. So give us the sell about 1PT. What is it that you do? Who are your customers? We believe we're unique in that you can have a little personal training studio, which can be fantastic for some people, where you go and see your coach once or twice a week, perhaps a little bit more. But if you want to go and train on your own, those facilities don't often cater for that. You can only go and have your personal training. Or you can go to a bigger gym, your mass, um, 
several thousand member facilities, uh, perhaps more of your budget type offerings, which do pr provide a fantastic offering for people, that value money for money, you could say. But often because they are so busy, and if you want to see a personal trainer, it's not always that possible because the kit's always been used. So our concept was to um, provide, have a limited membership around 250 to 300 people where you can come and it's a dedicated personal training facility, but you can also use it unlimited as a gym. So with our tech access, a wristband, RFID wristband access, you can come in, scan in, uh, you can use our membership system to check how busy the gym is, especially during the COVID, uh, when we were allowed to open during, uh, in between lockdown periods. There was often limits on facilities of how many people you could have training because of ventilation. So our members could check through their membership app how busy the club is, come down and use the facility. Do you think that the gym industry has been unfairly treated in the past year, Neil? I think it's had some real, real challenges. Um, personally, because of the size of our business, we've received a number of grants that has definitely helped. Um, but I think perhaps for some of the larger gyms where and chains where they've not been, um, been given those types of grants or financial support, it has been really, really difficult. I think not just the leisure industry, fitness industry, hospitality as a whole, I think are some of those industries that have gone above and beyond to put measures in place, such as extra sanitizing stations, disinfectant, one-way systems, social distancing, but have been the first to shut and the last to open. And I think if there had been science and evidence there, to say that the risk of transmission within gyms and hospitality meant that they should be shutting. You'd have to say, as a scientist, primarily, I'd say, I'd agree with you. But the data that showed that the number of cases per 100,000 as collected by our industry bodies, it was minimal that gyms were a safe place for people to go and train because, as I said, not just facilities like ourselves, but every gym in the country, you could see, wanted to do everything that they could to keep their facilities open. Because I think primarily, a lot of people within health and fitness are not always necessarily doing it for the money. They do it because of the love of the industry. And I wouldn't, and I'm sure every other gym operator and owner in the country would not want to put their members or their staff at risk of contracting which can be a very, very terrible and a fatal disease. It's interesting that you mentioned hospitality because you kind of think, oh, well, there's people grouped together in a pub, sitting around talking to each other. Uh, you might be sitting next to each other at the cinemas or, or, or whatever. But at the gym, invariably, you're there on your own training. You look at facilities, so there's the different types of facilities. As I said, there's that personal training environment where it's one-on-one. -on -one. And you look at how, and as we have done, it wasn't compulsory, but we asked all our staff to wear a face covering, even though that you would be two metres away. Um, and that has massive operational connotations for if somebody was to test positive because you've, you've worn a face covering, you've retained that two metre distance. So it helps protect the staff in that sense. 
Um, everyone who would come into our facility would be washing their hands, disinfecting, cleaning their equipment uh, quite religiously. I think the biggest bugbear for me within the fitness industry is not allowing group exercise classes, even if it's smaller numbers, because we operate just six to 12 people in a, in a class. And I think they seem to have this idea that they pose a higher risk, even though that people would be two or three metres apart, wouldn't be sharing equipment. I think that's been the biggest bugbear for me, to be honest. And I think, because I speak quite closely with our industry bodies, never really got a definitive answer why you wouldn't be allowed to have group exercise. And Neil, if the, the mantra of the last 12 months has been protect our NHS, and that is a message that we've all worked hard for and we all agree with, but if we want to protect our NHS moving forward, we know being fit and healthy in body and mind is one of the ways to do that, isn't it? It is, Michael, and I think one of the things that I've been in this industry within sport and health and well-being and fitness for 25 years, my mantra has always been to improve your health, that you've only got one body as such, and so look after it the best you can, and, and prevention is better than cure. And we know that exercise, physical activity is one of the major factors in reducing the risk of a whole number of uh, life-threatening diseases, whether it's cardiovascular disease, the risk of certain cancers, preventing obesity and becoming overweight. Um, and as you say, this year, very much in terms of helping in the recovery from those who've been very unfortunate to, to contract COVID. But also, we know that there's a lot of good evidence now to say that it will reduce the severe symptoms of COVID. But as you said, yeah, a whole believer that prevention is better than cure. And I think data has been published that the impact and the role that the physical activity sector has to play in reducing the burden on the NHS and the actual sort of the economical impact on the NHS in terms of the billions of pounds that could be saved by improving the health of this nation. And mental well-being, obviously, has been a, a key topic, a key theme this year. And people going to the gym, going to their class, whether that's once a week, every morning, whatever, it's part of their routine, it's part of their lifestyle. And when that's removed, the effects are obvious. I, I think it's huge. I think everyone can go out for a walk. And last year, myself and my family, we'd go out on bike rides. But as you say, it's that social interaction of actually going to the gym, getting just the physical routine of getting your bag ready putting it, getting your drinks bottle ready or pack, packing it all together, getting your towel and thinking that's part of your daily routine. I know personally from my, I've been lucky that I've been able to do outdoor sessions, online sessions. My wife really, really misses that social interaction of going and being as part of a group, catching up with people. And, and that cannot be underestimated. It's had a real, real impact. Do you think we've got it all wrong as well? Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, stands up and says, we're on schedule, the roadmap, gyms will be opening, pubs will be opening. And the first thing he then says is, I'm looking forward to having a pint in a pub, rather than actually, should he, what he should be saying is, I'm looking forward to going and doing some exercise in the gym. It's a, it's a tough question. 
Um, I think in terms of this roadmap, I've been quite happy with the roadmap because of the fact I, I would have been happier to stay closed that little bit longer if it meant that when we reopen on the 12th, we can stay open full time. And if it allowed the vaccination programme rollout to take its course, and as I listened to Jonathan Van Tam last December, where he said if the first phase is as successful as they believe, and we've reduced the number of hospital admissions by 99%, then I'd have taken that any day. And I think if it said 12 months ago, you'll have to shut for this length of time, but financially support for this length of time, but then when you reopen, you stay open. I think a lot of gym openers would have taken that and would have dealt with it and developed the online and all the things that we've talked about earlier. I think for Boris to say to go to the pub, I think he's in a difficult situation where he's to trying to support every business and every industry. Um, and I think that's all that he was perhaps really, really trying to demonstrate rather than say perhaps he prefers a pint over a, going for a walk or uh, a bike ride. Because I think he has tried to promote exercise and physical activity. He's actually done a little bit of, he's got himself a personal trainer. I think it was perhaps very scaring for him last year when he suffered very, very badly from COVID. There's certain things that perhaps could have done, been done better, but I think the vaccination rollout, if you look across Europe, has been absolutely fantastic. And a lot of a lot of applause has got to go to the NHS, I think, for that rollout programme. And we, we keep our fingers crossed that it continues to go the way that uh, it, it has been doing. So you mentioned 25 years in the sports industry. You haven't been running 1PT all of that time. What have you been, what were you doing before that? Um, I grew up as a farming lad. Um, grew up on a farm in the Lake District. Um, but my dad had always been into sport, watching rugby, uh, particularly rugby league. Um, used to travel across and watch Barrow in the late 50s when they were in their heyday. As a young kid, I went up to Workington and watched some rugby league. Um, it was often a bit of a challenge because I grew up in a rugby union playing area. And I tried working for my dad, and that wasn't... I just thought, it's got to be a long 50, 60 years working on a farm. And they encouraged me to go away and, and do sports science. I was loved sport, loved science. Did a degree, ended up doing a PhD. But was very lucky to start working with... Uh, a lot of international rugby union, rugby league players, when rugby union first went professional, doing fitness testing. And these were in the days before teams had their own strength and conditioning coaches and uh, fitness specialists, sports scientists. Even a little bit of um, a, an anecdote. When United won the treble in 1999, they didn't have a specialist fitness coach. So if you think of the era of Keane, Beckham and all those guys that were coming through and winning that treble... The physio, Dave Fever, was there basically their fitness coach and did everything. And it's only then as you moved into the 2000s that sports science, strength and conditioning has come really to the fore. Um, but my background took more of a corporate approach, working in health, well-being, fitness. And then in the early 2012 to 2016, I was lucky enough to set up and manage the sports medicine facility at St. George's Park, the National Football Centre. Um, and then it was after that I've sort of taken all that breadth of knowledge and experience into devising one PT. This is anything but footy. And I worked at Leeds United for 13 seasons. 
But on this occasion, Dr. Neil, I will forgive a mention of Manchester United. Some of the work you were doing, though, with elite athletes, certainly in, in rugby union, as you say, in the early days and then St. George's Park, it was pretty pioneering work, though. Things that we perhaps now just think of as the norm and take for granted. I think very much so that the introduction of weight training programs and everyone, a lot of it was just done anecdotally and a lot of the players, um, I was fortunate enough that when Andy Farrell was sort of making his debuts into the Wigan first team, there was Dennis Betts and these lads had started weight training programs and you looked at their physique and they were really at sort of getting sort of to the pinnacle of their fitness and strength. But then because Rugby Union had just become professional, you'd go to the likes of Sale Sharks and Ireland Rugby Union, and not many of those players had ever really done weights before or any real form. You were still back in the day of training Tuesday, Thursday nights, playing on a Saturday. And it, it was interesting to, to sort of like see the development and how things have advanced. But I think from my experience, a lot of the traditional research into sports science was all about your endurance athletes, your cycling, your running, your swimming. Even recent, I was one of the first in our country, especially to, develop, to start doing research into strength and power training and the effects of strength and the effects of fatigue on recovery and how athletes were recovering and what were the best forms of recovery. Was it sticking somebody in an ice bath? And if you think back to when England won the World Cup in 2003, at one stage they were bringing out wheelie bins and just pouring freezing cold water. And a lot of the rugby clubs at that time would have what looked like old coal huts and you'd lift up the lid and the players would sit in it. And now people are spending thousands and thousands on pounds on very, very sophisticated equipment and technology. But is it actually any better than what you were doing back 20, 25 years ago. I'm interested in your role at St George's Park as well, because you talked about England rugby union team winning the World Cup mm. in 2003, the football team win the World Cup in 1966, and then do nothing pretty much for, for 30 years. Then they have a, a Euro 96 semi-final. There's all the money in football in the Premier League. And yet it seems from a national point of view, a national game, there was no plan, no strategy. Does St George's Park and the work you've done there help to try and address that? Is maybe that why we've seen another World Cup semi-final more recently? I, I think personally, because I didn't actually work for the FA specifically. We, I worked for Spire Healthcare, the private healthcare company, who were basically engaged to develop and run the sports medicine facility on behalf of the FA, because the teams are not there all the time. Um, more recently, the FA have taken it on themselves and run it themselves. And... I think what was very, very interesting was seeing the understanding the reasons why the FA developed St. George's Park. And it was looking at the likes of Spain, France and Italy that had had their own national centre of excellence. Because don't forget, we had Lillyshaw for a good number of years where the likes of Michael Owen and Emil Heskey, I think, were some of those that used to go and live it and do two years and how many of those players actually went on to make the grade to the first team and the first team level? And I think that was the reason for developing St. George's Park, that you get this culture of the under-16s, under-17s, under-21s, not forgetting two or three years ago, the England under-17s 
won the World Cup of their era with the likes of Phil Foden. And looking at now, more of those players, the likes of Harry Kane, are stepping up to that senior level. And I think for me, it's not necessarily about all the technology in the world and all the sophisticated systems. I think looking from the outside in after I left, the culture that Gareth Southgate has brought in, and when we played at the last World Cup, and all the players are there in recovery sessions, and they had them floating on um, like flamingos and racing after each other in the pool, and people think they're just messing about. I used to listen to the radio, and they were whacking themselves with rubber chickens in training, but they were doing serious training and recovery, but with a fun element. And for me, that's mixing science, updates in training, sophistication with a good, wholehearted training ground culture. And I think probably a lot of that, a guy that I know that worked there as head of performance during that era was Dave Redding. And David Combe, he had been head of performance when England won the World Cup under uh, Sir Clive Woodward. And a lot, he had an aging squad that won the World Cup in 2003. But they've got those players to the pinnacle of their fitness level. A lot of those players had started in the amateur era, progressed into the professional and were battle-hardened, resilient characters, topped off with just a commitment to play for England. And I think I've, over the four to five years that I was there at St George's Park, you saw that transition the culture the environment and just watching the players in that last world cup and in the where that togetherness has seems to come through really under gareth southgate's tutelage and i think that's where we'll develop those strong bonds that commitment for wanting to play for your shirt two more questions for me very quickly eddie jones current england <laughs> rugby union boss what, what are your views um I think they seem to have struggled. And I think the way I look at elite sport, whether it's a head of fitness or a coach or a manager, they probably have a three or four year cycle where they perform and you improve and you get those systems in place. And then the players adapt to those systems and perform. But then everyone these days, because of video technology analysis, you've got statisticians, you've got video analysis guys all working out how you play other teams probably know then how you got to play and perform and can match that so is it then not best to have a three or four year cycle and then perhaps Eddie Jones moves into a more directorial role and you bring in a fresh coach I look back if I've got the time when Wigan Rugby League were in their heyday in the mid 80s to late 80s Graham Lowe was the coach, a New Zealand coach, for three years. John Morney then came in, an Australian guy, for three years. And he moved them on even further. Alex Ferguson, for me, and I say this an awful lot of times, he was manager for United, what, for about 20-odd years, 27 years? But every three or four years, he changed his coach. He had Brian Kidd, Steve McLaren. And I think that is perfect from my limited knowledge and experience, to just recycle things, to bring in fresh ideas. If it's your head of fitness, perhaps they change every three or four years because your players adapt to their training methods and you might hit a plateau. 
you need might need something new to come in just to freshen things up a little bit. Yeah, you uh, you might not like the other mention of the other Reds, but you know when you think back, Bob Paisley, Joe Fagan, Kenny Dalglish, it was three or four years, and they would just move on, and you would have fre fresh ideas. Don't get me wrong. I, as a kid growing up, I I used to watch Liverpool. They were my team. I could name all that team from the early eighties. We all did though, because they were the they were the, the the big powerhouse in those days, weren't they? They were an absolutely superb. But as you say, that they had that back room, the boot room guys that would come in and change over and bring in their own little fresh ideas. But the culture of that team was ingrained. Mm. And if you didn't want to be part of that culture, then you, you were out of the team. But he was very much, I think, managers, whether it was Shankly, Paisley, would always try and get players to come that would be part of that culture and would fit into that team ethos. And I think that's going back to 1PT, the one thing that I always said that we wanted to do was to bring, not necessarily to have the best PT in the world with all these qualifications, but have they got the personality? Have they got the engagement skills? You can't teach those, but you can teach people anatomy. You can teach them physiology and biomechanics. You can add those skills to somebody, but it's that engagement, being part of a community, being part of a culture to work for that team. It's been a very interesting episode of Anything But Footy, containing quite a lot of footy, which is actually <laughs> quite nice for us. Um, Neil, I just want to say we wish you and all your colleagues in, in the sector and also you, the body that I know that you work closely with, UK Active as well, all the very best with the reopening. Like you say, we hope that this time we can stay open. No, no thank you, uh, John, Michael. Thanks for inviting me to speak. I think just to, to reiterate your point, UK Active, and also SIMSPA, one of the other industry-leading bodies, have been absolutely fantastic, lobbying with government, liaising with the various scientific departments, and, and really putting the case forward for our what is a fantastic industry. We wish you well. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks, Michael. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.